great to have each of you with you. I will tell you, there's a light bulb up here that's flickering just a little bit, and it's not my it's not a strobe light to go with my sermon or anything. Uh, if it begins to do that again, Jared already has instructions to go and turn off the front row of lights. So if the lights go off, there's a reason for it, and it's okay. So it is great to have each of you with us this morning. Today, I want to continue through our current series that has been focused on specific encounters with Jesus as we lead up to the crucifixion and the resurrection stories. However, I do want to give you a little bit of a, a heads up regarding the order of this series. For some of y'all who have been in the church for a long time, it's going to seem that I got my calendar wrong. Typically, pastors will preach on the triumphal entry of Christ on Palm Sunday. It makes sense because that's actually what we're celebrating. However, I am going to do that next weekend. That will allow me to focus on the cross on Palm Sunday and then on Easter Sunday to focus on the resurrection. So I just ask for your grace as I finish out this series. I want us to be able to, to recognize that there are incredible encounters that are associated with all three of those, the triumphal entry, the cross, and the resurrection. And as I mentioned the Easter season, let me also take this as an opportunity to challenge you with something very specific. This church has been blessed quite a bit over the past couple years, and this church is growing. We're reaching new people, and we are seeing lives that are being changed, individuals who are surrendering their lives to Christ, and it is a blessing to see needs that are being met. Well, there's a world of people out there that needs to experience God the same way that we have been able to do here. And the reality is that there are certain times of the year that people tend to be more likely to respond to an invitation to join us at church. The two primary times that people are most likely to come, you already know what they are. One is at Christmas. Well, we've already passed Christmas. The second one is at Easter. Maybe it's just out of curiosity. Maybe it's out of tradition. But for whatever reason, people are more willing to come this time of year than almost any other time of the year. So if this ministry is impacting your life, then invite family and friends to also experience the same thing that you have been able to experience. What I will guarantee you is that as we continue through this Easter season, every message throughout this remainder of the series is very focused on the gospel message and the hope that we find in Jesus Christ, as that is the most important thing that we can share. So if you bring someone with you, they're going to hear about Jesus and what he can do for them. So I just want to encourage you to bring someone with you. Today our passage is going to be found in the gospel of Luke chapter 19. I had Jared read it to you earlier. By the time we come to this particular passage, Jesus' ministry is almost to its pinnacle. It's in full swing, and the people are excited. He's been healing people. He's been teaching people. The crowds are flocking to him. Some are ready to anoint him as their next king, while others want to have him killed. And in addition to the frenzy that has naturally accompanied him everywhere that he's gone, Jesus has begun to speak about things that make even his most devout followers feel very uncomfortable. I told you we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, but if you look in Luke chapter 18, Jesus mentions 
for the third time that he is about to be betrayed and then killed. He's speaking of the coming crucifixion, which of course had to take place for the resurrection to follow. Although it is unlikely that many understood exactly what he was talking about. They're still probably processing some of what he said. Can you imagine? In fact, some of them probably didn't even hear the second part about him dying or even him being resurrected. They heard someone's going to betray him. If they're like us, immediately upon hearing that, they're processing what he said. Who would betray Jesus? They're almost offended and they want to kind of focus in on that, but they didn't hear that perhaps he was even going to be crucified or that he would be resurrected later on. There are others that perhaps maybe they thought Jesus was speaking in riddles. Jesus often spoke in riddles and people didn't always grab what he was saying. Maybe this was one of those times. Jesus was about to die. Jesus is coming to town. So it's almost a holiday in town. People have gathered. They want to see what's happening. Sure, people have things to do, but it can wait. We've got a celebrity that's coming. It's not every day that Jesus passes through. Look at it with me, beginning in Luke 19, verse 1. I know you heard it already, but I want you to hear it again. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." Now, my guess is that probably everyone in this room has heard that story, even if you haven't been in church since you were seven years old. It's the old children's song about the wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I know that it's just a kid's song, but it's theologically and historically very accurate. Our passage tells us that this story takes place in a town called Jericho. That name probably sounds familiar as there was an Old Testament town also known as Jericho. But if you'll remember, that city was destroyed. Remember that the walls came tumbling down, another one of those children's stories that we often read. And although there would be attempts to rebuild the old city of Jericho, it would never be fully restored. Instead, what we see here is a new city of Jericho that would be built a few miles south of the original city. But this city was not insignificant. Even in the Old Testament, that Jericho was not insignificant. It was at a place of great importance, and it represented power in the land. This city 
was just as important. It was incredibly wealthy. It was often referred to as the city where Herod built. And it was known for its balsam and sycamore groves. And as such, it would serve as a great resource to the rest of Rome. Well, when you've got a city that's experiencing great prosperity, which that clearly defines this city, you'll also need tax collectors who can make sure that the government gets their fair share or maybe even just a little bit more. And typically, in a city this size, you'll have more than just one tax collector. Well, back to the passage, verse 2 introduces us to the chief tax collector. It's a man named Zacchaeus. Needless to say, he's the boss. That's why he's the chief. And he's probably among the wealthiest of the tax collectors in that city. His position of chief tax collector has probably taken him years to attain suggesting that he's been in this role for a very long time. Now, unfortunately, it's also worth noting that tax collectors tended to have a consistent reputation. Not only were they viewed as traitors because typically they were Jews serving the Roman government, but they were also often incredibly dishonest. And unfortunately, just about all of them fulfilled that role very well. If the tax required by the government was $10, it was not uncommon that the tax collector would require $11 instead. He was padding his own pockets. It wasn't for the government. It was so that he would have a little bit extra. The worst part about it was that the people knew what was taking place, but they were powerless to do anything about it. The government didn't care just so long as they got their money. We got our $10. You can do whatever you want. The the Jewish people are your people. So you have this cycle of Jews perpetually robbing their fellow Jews. And Zacchaeus, being the chief tax collector, is probably public enemy number one among the Jews. He is not a good guy. But according to this passage... This man, Zacchaeus, wanted to see Jesus. I want you to notice that all of the ugliness that has been a part of his life, everything that has identified who he is, it is secondary to the fact that this man wanted to see Jesus. I want to camp out here for just a few moments, as this is the beginning of one of the most beautiful stories that you will ever find in Scripture but it's also a model of hope for you and I today. I want you to take a moment. I want you to consider the absolute worst thing that you have ever done with your life. Or perhaps it wasn't one particular thing that was bad so much as it is a pattern of immoral choices. Do you ever reach a point where your sin becomes unforgivable? The answer is an emphatic no. As long as you have breath in your lungs, there is still hope, regardless of how bad a sinner you are. A great biblical example of this is seen in the Apostle Paul, and most of us will be familiar with his story. He often referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Prior to his Damascus Road experience, that would have been a very accurate description of him. 
Back then, he went by the name Saul. And this is a guy who continually breathed out murderous threats about, against anyone who would call themselves Christians. This is the same guy who sought to have those Christians arrested and even killed. And when Jesus addressed him on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The point is, Saul, later known as Paul, was a bad guy. He did things that the rest of us would look at and we'd think, what a horrible individual. But he was not beyond redemption. So I ask you to consider the worst thing that you've ever done. And it's almost encouraging to know we can be redeemed. We can be forgiven. Now I ask you to consider the worst thing somebody else has ever done to you. Is forgiveness and grace possible for them too? We love the idea of forgiveness and grace for us. We've done things that we regret and we've probably hurt people along the way, but we love the idea of forgiveness and grace for us. Is forgiveness and grace available to them also? Doesn't diminish the fact that what they've done has caused you a great deal of harm. Even in our passage today, I want you to consider the victims of the chief tax collector. Imagine that you were one of his victims. He's stolen money from you for years. Do you want redemption for him? Or do you want him to get what he deserves? Again, we love grace when it's extended to us. Is that grace also available to him? Let me just say that I am very grateful that we often do not get what we deserve. Because the truth is, for any of us, regardless of how good or bad you may perceive yourself, what we deserve would not be good. The wages of sin is death, and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means that if we get what we deserve, it will be death. We've all said things that hurt people. We've all done things without thinking about the feelings of others. And we've all acted selfishly at some point or another. And while our offense may not seem like it's that big of a deal to us, somebody else probably sees it differently. But as long as there is breath in us, there is hope. I want you to notice where this hope is found according to our passage. It is found in Jesus Christ. Remember, this guy is a bad man, but he longed to see Jesus. And as we look a little closer, we see that this was more than just some simple curiosity. This man so much wanted to see Jesus that he was willing to run ahead of Jesus with his short little legs and then climb up a tree to get a view of Jesus. This is not an insignificant thing. The truth is that this was a very humbling act for this man. You have to figure he's an important man. He may not be a popular man, but he's important. He's wealthy. Surely he could arrange for his own audience with Jesus, but he has to run ahead and then climb up a tree just to be able to see Jesus. 
Now, people today enjoy harassing one another for just about anything that is different. Different skin tone, where people are from, different accents, maybe their hair or even their lack of hair. In fact, I confess that I may or may not have harassed Pastor Colby. I had him lead the prayer earlier. I may or may not have harassed him a time or two regarding his lack of height. I wonder if people ever harassed Zacchaeus about his stature. Napoleon Bonaparte had not yet appeared in human history, so it's unlikely that anyone referred to him as having a Napoleon complex. But my guess is they did make fun of him. Many times, more than likely. Remember, he's a thief. He's not liked. And therefore, they made fun of him almost with a sense of ugliness and bitterness. But that didn't matter to Zacchaeus, at least not on that day. Because he was more interested in being able to see Jesus. If people make fun of me because I run with my short legs, if people make fun of me because I have to climb up in a tree just to see Jesus, so what? I want to see Jesus. And this speaks to the condition of his heart. Certainly there is a bit of curiosity, but there's more to it than just curiosity. This man has to know that he is hated. He's probably got very few friends. And he probably lives every day grateful for the resources at his fingertips, yet regretting the decisions that he's made in order to have those resources. I wonder, did he ever think, if only I could get a second chance? Well, he is about to get a second chance. You know, over the past several weeks, we've looked at the fact that many of these encounters with Jesus seem to be almost random. Of course, they are not random, but they seem that way. For example, you have the woman at the well. You have the man at the pool of Bethesda who wasn't looking for Jesus that day. Last week, we talked about the funeral procession that Jesus came across, and then Jesus raised the young man back to life. These were all orchestrated events. Jesus knew who he would come across each time. And this situation is no different. It wasn't as if Jesus woke up that morning not knowing he was going to run into Zacchaeus. In fact, look at verse 5 for a moment. The chief tax collector has just run ahead of Jesus to climb a tree. He's not expecting Jesus to stop and chat with him, much less eat a meal with him. He just wants to see him. But Jesus comes right up to him and addresses him by name. Look at it. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus knew his name. Maybe you wonder why this matters. I told you earlier that as long as you have breath in your lungs, there is hope for redemption and that this redemption is found solely in Jesus Christ. However, I want you to notice that there is not only a hope, but Jesus personally longs. He seeks it. He wants your redemption. Remember that Zacchaeus is a bad man, but Jesus knows him personally. And just as Jesus, or just as Zacchaeus longed to see Jesus, 
Jesus longed to see Zacchaeus redeemed. The same is true for you. Have you ever looked at your own sin and wondered if God would even accept you into his loving family? Not only does he accept you back, he longs for you to come back to him. In fact, it's so important to realize that Jesus came to him while he was still in the midst of his sin. And then Jesus invites himself over for dinner. I'm going to stay at your house today. A little side note here. As I was thinking about this meal that would take place at the home of Zacchaeus, the thought went through my mind that the most comfortable person at this meal was probably one of Jesus' disciples named Levi, also known as Matthew. He was one of the 12 disciples, if you'll remember, but he was also a tax collector prior to becoming a disciple. In fact, Mark chapter 2 tells us that having left his tax collector's booth to follow Jesus, he then held somewhat of a banquet where his fellow tax collector friends also got to meet Jesus. So as Jesus and his disciples now find themselves sitting for a meal with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, Matthew probably felt right at home. These were his kind of people. He understood them. He knew how they thought he could relate to them. I even wonder if Matthew's presence didn't make this a little bit easier for Zacchaeus. Uh, Jesus has already welcomed this guy. He's already made him feel like he's the most important person in the world. You've got literally hundreds, if not thousands of people that are watching Jesus and Jesus stops and singles him out. Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to stay with you today. Zacchaeus feels very important. Don't misunderstand me, but at the same time, it had to be encouraging to Zacchaeus to look and see that one of the disciples, the very people who were a part of Jesus' inner circle, to see that they had been redeemed. There is a point to this, of course. Not only can anyone be redeemed through the grace of Jesus Christ, not only does Jesus long for that redemption to take place, but it's also important to note that your story of redemption can become a tool in helping others find such redemption. Matthew, also known as Levi, he had experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ. And now Zacchaeus could see it. And perhaps maybe he could receive the same thing. Back to us here. How many of us look at our experiences in our past as a tool that God can use to reach those around us. I've been a teacher, a dentist, an electrician. I've been through cancer, betrayal. Maybe you've been through divorce. You've lived in addiction and sexual immorality or alcoholism. If I could find redemption, if my life could be changed, then surely someone else's life could be changed too. So I invite you to use what God has done in your life to share with those around you. It was never God's plan for you to live in sin, 
but God met you in the midst of your sin, and he provided a way out for you. He could do it for others too. Matthew is not the same man that he was before. Remember that he's left his tax collecting booth. He's moved from being among the most hated list to the most admired list among the Jews. Crowds follow Jesus everywhere he goes, but he is now among the inner circle, the 12 disciples. He is one of them. His life was a living testimony of the power of God to change a life, and your life should be too. I do want to just briefly mention verse 7, just because I don't want to overlook it, but it Part of the reason I want to share this is because I find Jesus' response humorous. Listen to it for a moment. When they saw it, they being the, the religious leaders, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. These religious leaders probably weren't expecting Jesus to eat with sinners, but as we've talked about, that's what he's done. He's done that before. He did that with Matthew. He did it with other individuals. Yet here he is doing it again. They probably would have expected Jesus to stop in at one of their homes. After all, they are reputable people in the community. These are examples of what godliness ought to be. At least that's the way they perceive themselves. But here we see Jesus eating with this nasty tax collector. What's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't even entertain their complaints. Of course, there are times that he will, but not this time. For example, do you remember the guy who was brought to Jesus on a mat? We looked at him really early in this series. In that case, Jesus offers him forgiveness, and immediately the people are bothered. They know that only God has the power to forgive sins. And in their hearts, they begin to grumble and complain. They haven't said it verbally yet, but they're bothered by this. So Jesus calls them out. He says, you complain in your heart about me forgiving this man's sins. But which is easier to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven, or to tell him to get up, take his mat, and go home so that you will believe. He looked down at the man and he said, get up, take your mat, and go home. And that's exactly what he did. When Jesus asked that question, which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to tell him to get up and go home? It's not, this is a rhetorical question, as nobody can confirm whether this man's sins are forgiven. So in other words, if I say his sins are forgiven, who can confirm it or deny it? You don't know, because that's between God and man. You can tell me your opinion, but really only God knows if his sins are forgiven. However, if I tell him to get up and walk, everybody in this room is going to know if I just told the truth, because this man couldn't walk when he came in, and now he can. The point is that sometimes Jesus addressed the complaint. Sometimes he didn't. In fact, even at the meal with Matthew and Levi, We see such an encounter. Listen to Mark 2, verse 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well 
have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus feel, clearly felt compelled to address the complaint sometimes, but not this time. I wonder why. Is it possible that he knew that among the crowd, he already knew that they had already made up their minds about him? That many of them had already decided no matter what he said, they wanted him to be anointed the next king of Israel? Is it possible that he knew there were others in the crowd that no matter what he said, they wanted to have Jesus killed? Because what he stood for did not line up with what they wanted. Or is it possible that he's just so focused on the need of Zacchaeus' heart that he wasn't going to get caught up in all the pettiness of the religious crowd? I don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus simply brushes off the complaint of the religious crowd. Some say that Jesus addresses it at the end of the passage when he points out his purpose for coming, but at least for now, he's more focused on the heart of Zacchaeus. Obviously, today's message has been all about redemption. And I want you to notice that redemption is about more than just feeling better about yourselves. You know, often we've committed sin, we've made poor choices, and we feel like we're just bad people. We feel guilty, we feel shame, we know the things that we've done would disappoint people that we love. If your mom or your grandma knew what you've done, man, you'd be ashamed. And you think to yourself, how could anybody ever love me? How could anyone ever offer me redemption? I want you to notice that redemption is more than just feeling better about yourself. In fact, even in our story, we see that true redemption, that it looks very, very different from just a feeling. Listen to me, a changed heart always leads to changed actions and changed priorities. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important, and I think for too long we've talked about just saying a prayer and everything is good, but a changed heart always leads to changed actions and changed priorities. In verse 8, Zacchaeus commits to give half of everything that he has to the poor and to pay back anybody that he has defrauded in any way with significant interest four times whatever the amount is that I've taken. The reason why this matters is Zacchaeus is not some generous guy who's been doing good things for the community all his life. He's wealthy because he's a thief. He's wealthy because he's selfish. And now he is demonstrating a complete change of heart. I don't need all this money. It hasn't brought peace or satisfaction. Instead, he has probably found peace for the very first time in his entire life. And it wasn't because of money. It was because of an encounter with Jesus Christ. So Jesus responds by announcing that today salvation has come to this house. This man's heart has been changed and salvation is here for this man. This is perhaps the greatest announcement that he would ever hear. And he will echo it with his lifestyle moving forward. 
But to know that salvation has come to him probably was music to his ears. Remember, Jesus had a man who came to him. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He went away very sad. He was a very wealthy man, not willing to give up the thing that was most important to him. What a contrast between these two individuals. Both of them very wealthy. One of them actually going, seeking out Jesus to be able to ask that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The other one just wanted to see Jesus. But at the end of the day, that man was delivered. He was redeemed. He was set free. What a contrast. What will you do with an encounter with Jesus Christ? Will you allow God to change you, to transform your life, so that you won't be the same person you were before. I know maybe that seems really hard. How does an individual completely transform their life? How does an individual who's lived selfish and moral, how does that individual move from one train of thought to the other? Let me suggest to you that it cannot be done simply because you want it to be done. Jesus Christ is the one who changes a man's heart. It is a relationship with him. Honestly, my goal today is not to see every, this is going to sound like I'm telling you you don't have to be changed. My goal is not to see you change today. My goal is to see you surrender your life to him. To enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what will happen if you genuinely experience that relationship with him? Your life will be changed. You're not going to be content with the same sin that was a part of your life before. He will redeem you and he will transform you so that you begin to reflect him as opposed to reflecting yourself. We are all imperfect individuals and I get it. But I know that I have a God who can take all of my sin and imperfection and he can transform my life and he's already done it. I'm still a work in progress, but he continues to transform me every day. And I just want you to be a part of that same thing. By the way, this guy's statement of I will give half of everything that I have and I will repay anyone I have defrauded up to four times what I have taken from them. That is a public statement. He is making a declaration that others in the room would have heard. Imagine you were one of those that this man has ripped you off. You're going to hold him accountable? Four times what you've taken from me. You're going to hold him accountable? Absolutely. He just made a public statement. You're going to hold him to it. The way he lives, it's more than just saying I'm going to do it. The way he lives beyond this will speak volumes to the rest of the people in that community. I'm going to tell you, if God transforms your life, when God transforms your life, it will impact other people significantly. Has God already transformed your life? If not, he wants to. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, we are so honored to be able to gather together, to be able to call upon your name. Lord, we are imperfect people. As I look around the room this morning, there are people that have shared some of their own personal struggles. Some of the sinful choices that have dominated their lives. Lord, there's so much regret and shame. And sometimes we're just afraid even that other people will find out that they'll judge us, that they'll see us in an ugly manner. 
when it comes down to it, Lord, all of us are sinners. And all of us were in need of redemption. But you have made it possible for all of us to be redeemed. Father, my prayer today is that every person in this room would have a personal encounter with you. That they would recognize the need for you in every aspect of their lives. I pray that it would change who they are. I pray that we would not be the same people today that we were yesterday and that even tomorrow and the day after that, that every day we will become more and more like you. That you would transform us into a completely different image. But Father, I pray that you would begin here much like with Zacchaeus. Lord, I pray that you would simply change our hearts. You tell us in your word that if we confess our sin, and we all know what our sins are. We know the things that we've done that aren't right. We don't need the preacher to stand up and tell us. We recognize that feeling of guilt and shame. But you tell us in your word that if we will confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and you will forgive us of those sins. That is the redemption. That is the forgiveness that we so desperately need. And if there be one here today that does not yet know that redemption and that forgiveness, I pray that right now you would grant it. Father, I pray that you would begin that process of transforming our lives. Lord, allow our lives to become a testimony to the world around us. That they too can know that if we could be changed, then they could be changed as well. Father, I pray that you would use us to reach the lost in our community. We have family members right now that are not ready. If you were to come back today or if they were to die today, they would not be ready. I pray right now that you would allow us to become your voices. May we become a model to the people around us of what you can do. But I pray that you would... Use us to reach the people that we love for you. Father, again, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And we look forward to seeing what you do as we continue through this Easter season. I pray that lives will be changed. In the coming days, we will celebrate. We've got some baptisms that are coming up. We will celebrate the salvation that has come to others. But I pray that, Lord, there would be even more who would respond. Lord, we praise you for what you're already doing. And we look forward to seeing what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a blessing to have each of you. And I did just mention during that prayer time, we do have baptism that's coming up. We're actually going to use the Sunday following Easter. And there'll be baptisms in both services. We actually have at least three people that have already uh, mentioned that they would like to be baptized, having made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, if there are others that have made that decision and would like to be baptized, I just want to let you know that that is available to us. Uh, baptism is a great opportunity for us to testify to the saving and the cleansing work of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives. It's a great opportunity for us to publicly declare, I am a new creation in him. If that's you, I would love to be a part of that. Uh, let me know. Come see me maybe today or uh, next Sunday, and that we, we'll make sure it's on the schedule. If you tell me on Easter Sunday, I might forget. So tell me this Sunday or maybe the following Sunday. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Go in peace.